0: And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And the king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find and those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good so the wedding hall was filled with guests but when the king came in to look at the guests he saw there was a man he saw a man who had no wedding garment and he said to him friend how did you get in here without a wedding garment And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen.
1: We have four sobering truths from this famous parable for this wonderful baptism day as we celebrate the birth of Matthew and Paul and welcome them into the church family. One, God's generous goodness. Jesus used this parable of the wedding banquet at least twice in his teaching. He adapts it to fit the audience. Frequently, Jesus uses, uses parables to speak of his kingdom. You can see that in the first verses. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the feast. The king is God. The son is Jesus. Those invited are the audience to whom he's speaking, the chief priests and the elders of Israel. The servants are those who are sent out with the message of Jesus' rule. Wedding feasts of kings in the first century were lavish affairs, lasting a week or more. And verse 4 speaks there of a magnificent spread. Tell those invited, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. I'm sure there would have been a vegan option should you have needed it. But without refrigeration, with significant numbers of guests, a pre-invitation was always issued to such affairs. Once the provisions were assembled, the table set, the word went out. The picture of a wedding feast, of the son of a king, it suggests privilege for those invited, joy. For those who are in attendance, largesse. On the part of the host, fun. But in the Bible, a royal banquet is about far more simply than Harry and Meghan, Wills and Kate. God depicts his relationship with his people in terms of a marriage consummated finally at the end of time when he assembles all his people at the glorious banquet where his son, King Jesus, presides. Marriage is such a wonderful picture of this. It speaks of intimacy, of commitment, of faithfulness, till death us do part. And God uses the language of a great feast to speak of a new world at the end of time for all his people, in which everything that spoils this earth is removed, his new creation. And so this particular parable is laden with meaning consider the generous goodness of God. Not only as creator does he bring all that we see, touch, and feel into existence. Not only as sustainer does he allow this globe to continue day by day. Not only as provider does he give us all that we need. Not only as lover does he hold out the possibility of a relationship with With him, the author of life, at the end of it all, in spite of the way that we handle his glorious good gifts, he offers to every single one of us the possibility of a new creation in which joy and intimacy and kindness and goodness are the currency the generous goodness of God. Some have a view of God's new creation as a place of dreary, gray, neutered monotony, white, nighty-clad celestial beings on clouds with harps. If there is such a thing as heaven, I certainly wouldn't want to be there. Others have a view of God's new creation as a place where all our most grotesque human desires are realised a thousand Vestal virgins. God speaks, Jesus speaks of marriage, faithfulness, a party, generous provision, a feast, It's an old story. I hope you'll forgive me for telling it again. It always makes me chuckle, but a dear friend of mine was giving his first ever Bible talk at a house party for teenage children. And he had played rugby for Oxford and Cambridge in the second row. He was a huge man, and he was very, very nervous, visibly so. He was actually shaking as he spoke, and you could see his knees knocking together. It was a children's talk for teenagers. It was magnificent. Three very simple, clear points. The Christian faith is fact, not fiction. The Christian faith is friendship, not formula. The Christian faith is feast, not funeral. So great were his nerves that he delivered with all the conviction of a second row forward, The talk with the points in precisely the wrong order. The Christian faith is fiction, not fact, he announced. Formula, not friendship. Funeral, not feast. And all the senior leaders were sitting in the back row of the talk with their heads like this. And every single one of us remember it to this day. And some of us repeat it with unfortunate monotony. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that there is life beyond. Isn't that why you and I long for purpose in life now? If there's nothing beyond, you are an atomistic dot floating meaninglessly through time. And it stands to reason, doesn't it, that the God who created this world would have in store for his people something of infinitely greater pleasure and splendor beyond? The prophet Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, of well-aged wine. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. He will swallow up death forever look at the life of Jesus, and we see a small picture of the new creation that lies beyond, the generous goodness of God, God's justified judgment. Sometimes we come across a person who suggests that New Testament religion knows nothing of judgment. It's only the Old Testament where we find such things discussed. Just a few years back, I was speaking on the subject of judgment from the New Testament, and a gentleman was visibly distressed. He came and spoke to me just down there at the end of the service. Of course, I believe in Jesus' teaching. Jesus speaks to us of the God of love. You're just concerned with Old Testament religion, speaking of judgment like that. It struck me then, though I didn't say it to our friend, it would have been rather rude, that only a person profoundly unfamiliar with the teaching of Jesus could hold such a view. Uh, The parable of the wedding feast finds itself in Matthew's eyewitness account of the life and teaching of Jesus. In this account, you can pick up a copy if you'd like and take it home and read it, there are so many instances of Jesus warning about the reality of judgment and hell, that it would take a month of Sundays to begin to cover it. Jesus spoke of judgment in the parable just preceding this one, the parable of the tenants. At the end of this piece, in chapter 23, Jesus speaks of judgment, of Jerusalem being judged. Then there's the parable of the talents, and the sheep and the goats, even in this little section. And that's before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous of Jesus' teaching, undergirding Western democracy and so many of our values across the whole of the Western world. Jesus taught judgment. But here we have to concede that judgment is deserved, that this is no wild lashing out, or irrational anger of an irascible despot. Verse 5. They paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed these murderers and burned their city. This is a king. It's a first-century king. This is a royal wedding from one who has absolute authority, executive, legislative, legislative and all the rest. This is a gold-embossed invite. Remember the wedding of William and Kate. Remember the invitation to Ricky McCaw, then captain of the All Blacks. It was a stroke of genius on the part of Prince William in the lead-up to the World Cup to invite the captain of the All Blacks to his wedding. Could he possibly refuse? He could. He did. And William's ploy to distract the captain of the All Blacks from his essential preparation was foiled. But these guys accepted. And then they found something better to do. So verse 3, he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my ox and my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything's ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. That word attention, paid no attention, that little phrase combines two words without concern. Elsewhere, it's translated careless, neglectful. They paid no regard. They saw and felt no special need. One person puts it like this they were aware of no special beauty in the invitation. It's worth noting the patient kindness of God in verse three. He sent the first servants, they wouldn't come. He sent another group of servants. The patient kindness of God serves simply to accentuate the shocking indifference of the careless, the just judgment of God. Is it not justified in light of the invitation, the generosity, the provision? God has invited me to his banquet. I'm sorry, I'm too busy at work. God has invited me to the wedding feast of King Jesus. Don't you realize how important my current priority is? God has invited me to the end of time, eternal, new creation feast. Oh, Oh, I've really got to improve my golf handicap. I've just bought a new apartment. My gym membership costs £150 a month and my personal coach has set me a target. I must attend my spin class but we've been invited by the king of kings to the wedding feast of his son. Unpreventable purpose. Then he said to his servants, verse 8, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Ponder this. There is something extraordinarily conceited about the assumption that because I have chosen to spurn the generous goodness of God... Somehow God's lavish preparation will not come to fruition. Oh, I'm not going, so the party won't happen. Taken for what it is, explored and examined, it speaks of a self-absorbed arrogance that is almost beyond comprehension. The feast is prepared. It will happen the bridegroom is to be married, there will not be an empty seat. That little phrase, not worthy, is intriguing. Those invited were not worthy. What makes them unworthy? What makes them unworthy, especially in the light of the fact that when The servants go out and invite everybody. They invite both bad and good. It seems that the unworthiness is connected to the slight on the son and the king of finding something better to think about than his wonderful invitation. We didn't think it worth the time of day that you invited us to the feast. They were not worthy. We felt it more important to complete that deal or advance our career rather than go to the feast. They were not worthy. We were more concerned with what our peers might think rather than attending the feast. They were not worthy. We thought our degree mattered more. What were we thinking? What unworthiness But the party will go on and there will be no empty seats and the eternal purpose of the everlasting God, his set desire that King Jesus will have a glorious banquet is never going to be thwarted by my petty conceit. Go out to the main road and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And the servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Do you know the Bible speaks of those benefiting from God's offer at a place at his future banquet in the new creation as being as numerous as the dust of the earth? As multitudinous as the sand on the seashore, as incalculable in number as the stars in the sky. When did you last go to the beach? Tried counting the sand? When did we last look inside our omni-glide cordless clear-blind Dyson, or even look at the omnidirectional fluffy head of it to count the amount of dust there was? Did we look at planet Earth as the camera went up into the sky in the Serengeti dark night? Did we try and count the stars? People will come from east and west, north and south. They will be taken from every tribe, tongue, language and clan. The idea that there might be an empty seat at God's wedding banquet is bizarre. The question is, will we be there? It is remarkable to see the growth of the church today. The fastest growing church in the world today, Iran and Afghanistan. It's a wonder to turn up on a Wednesday evening and just even peer through the glass door, as I did on Wednesday, at our international growth groups where there are between 20 and 30 people coming to investigate the claims of Jesus Christ. It's extraordinary to think that in the most recent study, there are more Christians in Africa than any other continent on the, world, on the planet. 685, by 20, 685 million by 2021, expected to be 760 million by 2025. We're not going to stop the banquet we could miss out. Presumption. When the king came in, verse 11, to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? The man was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into outer darkness whether we're weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. We need to handle this last observation with care. I know there are some among us, Sunday morning by Sunday morning, who by temperament worry deeply about our own salvation. Have I done enough? Have I responded adequately? Am I in? Frequently, such concerns, from my observation, have to do more with our personal psychological disposition than with reality-based in fact. The generosity of God is that he longs for all to be there. He doesn't desire the death of a sinner. He saves us not because of works done by us. It is not on account of works, lest any person should boast. If we are worried that we've not done enough, not responded adequately, my observation is that almost certainly we have responded rightly to the invitation. The fact that we are concerned shows a lack of presumption. But in the first century, it was unimaginable not to be properly dressed for a social engagement of this sort That social custom, I note, has slightly passed us by at 21st century weddings, but we needn't worry about that. It showed complete disregard for the host, treating him with close to the same disdain as those who are so interested in their own career and their own business that they refuse to pay attention to the invitation. And so it is presumption. Oh, I'm sure I'll be in. I'm not going to bother. And if necessary, I'll bluff my way at the door. The gospel of King Jesus is that Jesus is king, that we are to repent, turn round, and follow him. It assumes preparation in response to the invitation. We must close. May I mention three books? One, Pax by Tom Holland. He explores the barbaric bestiality of the Roman Empire. Literally bestiality in some instances. He has a whole chapter devoted to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 by General Titus. Titus' raising to the ground of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 makes anything going on in the world today appear like a Sunday school picnic. By the time Jesus' prophecy concerning first century Jerusalem was realized in 70 A.D., the invitation had been extended and responded to in India, Europe, North Africa, Turkey, Rome. The wedding hall was filled with guests. The second book, David Rietveld, Being Christian After Christendom, is a fascinating study of what it means to be a Christian in the West today in a post-Christendom world. But in the early chapters, he explores some of the privileges that are ours, or should I say were ours, living in a culture shaped by the teaching of Jesus. The understanding of ultimate accountability, a shared assumption of knowing right from wrong, meekness and humility as a virtue. And as you read it, you cannot but consider the goodness of God to us in the Western world, how kind he's been the opportunities every single one of us in this building have had to respond to the generous invitation of God, our own culpability, should we reject? And a third fascinating new book by Justin Briley, he interviews for an hour most weeks leading thinkers and uh, He's entitled his book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. I think it's a slightly strange title. I don't think God would be particularly surprised that people are believing in him. But he's exploring the Western world, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. He charts the implosion of the celebrity atheist movement, Dawkins, Hitchens, and others from early in the 20th century and how it's all fallen apart. And then he talks about the leading secular thinkers of today. People like Tom Holland, Louise Perry, Mary Harrington, Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray and others. And he discusses the way that these leading thinkers are beginning to think maybe there is something in the Christian faith after all. God is extraordinarily patient, isn't he? He may even be opening the door. To us in the West to reconsider the folly of rejecting his invitation. His generous goodness, his just judgment, his unpreventable purpose, presumption. I'm going to lead us in prayer. So the wedding hall was filled with guests our father in heaven we pray that you would enable by your holy spirit each and every each and every one of us to respond rightly to your generous invitation in jesus name amen